Well, hello, and thanks for listening in to our weekly teaching podcast here at City Church. We are a church in the Knoxville area that seeks to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you're in Knoxville or ever visiting Knoxville, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people here in the city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com slash give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can drop us a line at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. So no matter what your background, you probably have some degree of familiarity with what we're going to cover these next four weeks. And the fact that most of us are familiar with it, I think, is both an advantage and a disadvantage when it comes to walking through these passages. It's an advantage because we're all familiar with it. I don't have to unpack nearly as many of the details of these stories because most of us kind of know the basic gist of what was going on in these passages. But I also think it's to our disadvantage because the reality is sometimes when we are familiar with a passage or with a story, the story loses some of its punch, right? We just assume that we kind of already know what it's all about. When we're familiar with the story, it tends to come across as a bit stale. There's a popular saying out there that goes, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. And I don't know that it breeds contempt always, but it it certainly breeds uh, disinterest or apathy, right? It breeds this feeling of, yeah, I've heard this before. I don't really need to pay all that much attention to what we're talking about. It can make you exponentially less interested in these stories. And I think specifically when it comes to the Christmas stories, familiarity can breed sentimentalism. We tend to airbrush this story, make it picturesque and cute, right? It's something for like really cheesy paintings and really bad greeting cards around the holidays. We turn it into that sort of thing and we miss some of the gist of what it's actually about. And I think that's really unfortunate because this story, the biblical story of Christmas, is anything but sentimental. It's raw, it's subversive, it's dangerous to the status quo. And it is, as our series title indicates, precisely not what you would expect. And more than that, I truly believe that these stories have something to teach us today that we desperately need to hear about who God is, who Jesus is, and what his kingdom is. Is like. So our attempt for the next four weeks during the series is going to be to unpack a lot of that for you guys. Does that make sense? Now, all of that being said, today, ironically, we're going to be looking at the part of the Christmas story that most frequently gets left out, the genealogy. That's right, today we are going to look at the somewhat dry, very random list of ancient names that kicks off the book of Matthew. I just felt like that would get us in the Christmas spirit, right? So that's what we're going to look at. For those of you that were just on pins and needles wondering when are we going to cover in depth a genealogy together, today all of your wildest dreams come true and we're going to do it. So you're welcome for that. But in all seriousness, when it comes to a genealogy, When it comes to these lists of ancient names that pop up all over our Bibles, most of us just tend to skip right over them, right? I I was reading in my daily reading plan the other day, uh, and I think I hit a genealogy like in the book of Genesis, and as soon as I got to that passage, I saw that that was my passage to read for the day, I was like, going to go ahead and check this one off, nothing important here, right? Just moving on to the next passage, because we just assume that... There's not much that an ancient list of names, not any sort of impact that that could have on us 
today. At least that's our assumption. But I think especially with this genealogy in Matthew, the one that we're going to read today, I think it very much has some things to do with our lives today. And I want to try to show you that today. I want to try to prove to you why I think that. Will you attempt to let me do that this morning? Fair enough. If you, if you say no, I really have nothing else planned. So I, I think we're going to have to do it anyway. But that's my goal for this morning. And if nothing else, as we go through this list of ancient names, maybe those of you that want to have kids one day will come up with like unique ideas for baby names, right? If nothing else, maybe we can accomplish that this morning. So here's what we're going to do. Let's read the genealogy in Matthew chapter one, let's go all the way through it and then we'll go back and kind of zoom in on some specific things about it. Are you ready? That did not instill confidence in me. Matthew chapter one, verse one. We're gonna do it. We're really gonna do it, you guys. Verse one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Would hate to be those guys, right? You don't even get names, just Judah and those other jokers. Verse 3, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Uh, If you're in the room and you're expecting kids and you're trying to come up with a name, might I suggest branching out into the names of fish? Just feels like that's an untapped market out there. You're welcome for that. Verse 5, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Whoops, that doesn't sound like a great idea, David. Verse 7. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. If you are looking for baby names, I have no idea why you're not taking notes at this point. Jehoshaphat is a great one. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Everybody still alive? Good, because we're not done. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, these are getting difficult now, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok is obviously one of the Pokemon, got to catch them all, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Iliud, and Iliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, here we go, this should sound familiar starting now the husband of Mary to whom Jesus was born who is called Christ verse 17 so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation of Babylon 14 generations and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ 14 generations give you give yourselves a hand that was great good job guys Can't you just practically smell the Christmas trees now, right? (laughs) Nothing quite gets you in the Christmas spirit like a random list of ancient names. So now that you've kind of gotten a gist of the whole passage in its entirety, what in the world is this about 
And what does it have to do with you and me today? Those are the questions we're all asking, right? Those are fantastic questions. First, let's start things off with maybe the most obvious question to ask. Why a genealogy? Why start off the Christmas story, and not only that, but an entire book of the Bible, Matthew, and not just any book of the Bible, but the very first book of the whole New Testament with this type of passage? Why a genealogy? Well, it has to do with how people back then thought about themselves. So today, if we want to convince someone of our legitimacy, if we want them to think that we're impressive, we want to convince them of our worthiness in some facet of life, we tend to use our accomplishments to do that. When we're applying for a job, we bring a resume of the things that we've accomplished. When we want to impress someone at a party, we try to ever so casually mention the things that we're most proud of being involved in. When we meet someone new, one of the first things we ask is what? What do you do? That's because today, when we want someone to think that we're impressive, we use our accomplishments to do that. For better or worse, we define ourselves by what we have accomplished, or at least we tend to. Back then, in Matthew's day, it was a little bit different. People back then defined themselves less by what they did and more by the family that they came from. That's what they were all about back then, the family that they came from. If you wanted someone back then to think that you were impressive, if you wanted to convince them of your credentials, you wouldn't so much give them a resume, you would talk to them about the family that you came from. You would show them your family's lineage. It was your way of saying, hey, this is the stock that I come from. Here's how you know that I'm legit. It actually is still this way in many parts of the world, even if it, it really isn't in America. But once you know that, once you know that that's how ancient people thought in this day, it might start to make sense, or at least a little bit of sense, of why when we get introduced to the most important guy in the scriptures, i.e. Jesus, Matthew, the author, kicks things off by describing for us the family that Jesus came from. It's Matthew's way of saying, here's who Jesus is, here are his credentials, here's his legitimacy. It's a list of names that is meant to convince us of the stock that Jesus comes from and therefore as his right, of his rightful place as the Messiah, this long-awaited king of Israel. Here's how biblical scholar and pastor N.T. Wright describes how this would work in his commentary on the book of Matthew. He says, For many cultures, ancient and modern, and certainly in the Jewish world of Matthew's day, this genealogy was the equivalent of a roll of drums, a fanfare of trumpets, and a town crier calling for attention. Like a great procession coming down a city street, we watch the figures at the front and the ones in the middle, but all eyes are waiting for the one who comes in the position of greatest honor right at the end. This is what Matthew was doing. He was giving us a long, drawn-out, dramatic, royal introduction to who Jesus was, to show his readers just how legitimate Jesus was as the Messiah. But to be honest, that's where it starts to get a little bit weird, because this is not your ordinary genealogy. There are actually quite a few things in this genealogy that are very odd for Matthew to include if that was what he was trying to accomplish, things that you wouldn't expect at all from a genealogy of this time period. 
For starters, there are women in this genealogy. Now, I'm a big fan of including women in ancestry lines, but just for you to know, people of this time period in general did not do that. That was not a common practice in Matthew's day. In a patriarchal culture like the one he inhabited, women were virtually never included in listing out ancestry lines. But Matthew includes several women in his genealogy, five of them to be exact. Now, what's even more peculiar is which particular women Matthew chooses to include. First off, the majority of these women were Gentile women, not Jewish, in their ethnicity. Now, in a society that often prided itself on the ethnic purity of their family tree, people of other ethnicities were generally omitted from the genealogy because they didn't help your cause at all. Matthew doesn't seem to be interested in omitting these women at all, though. In fact, he goes out of his way to include them in his list. But there's even more to this. For instance, you might be thinking, okay, but why not mention the women in every generation, right? Like, because if you know anything about biology, turns out it takes a man and a woman to make a child in every generation. And so why would you not mention every single one of the women? Why only mention five of them in this genealogy? Well, it seems like it's because Matthew is trying to draw our attention not just to these specific women's identities, not just to their ethnicity even, but also to their stories. He wants to call to mind the stories that are associated with these women in the scriptures. So quickly, let's find out who the women in Matthew's genealogy are one by one. First, Tamar. Tamar, in verse 3, is connected to Judah. That's what it says. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Fun little fact, though. Uh, Judah was not Tamar's husband or boyfriend or bae or any of that. Judah was Tamar's father-in-law. So there's that. If you're not familiar with the story, there's this really odd R-rated passage in Genesis where Tamar's husband dies and then her father-in-law refuses to give her the next son in his family, which was a commonly accepted practice of the day. So in order to get back at her father-in-law in revenge, Tamar dresses up like a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law. Ooh would be the correct response to that, by the way. Some of y'all didn't know parts of the Bible read like an episode of Jerry Springer, but it does. We'll just move on as quickly as we can from that story. Next in the lineage is Rahab, verse 5. Rahab was an actual prostitute, like for a living. And not only that, she was from a wicked city that was under God's judgment. Ruth, in verse 5, had a decent reputation as far as we know, but she was a Moabite which means she was a descendant of a guy named Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter. Also, ooh. And then we have a woman who is only referred to as, quote, the wife of Uriah. Now, here's what's interesting. If you know your Old Testament, we actually know this woman's name, right? Anybody want to take a guess at what it is? Bathsheba. Yeah. So why here does he only say the wife of Uriah? If we know her name, why not use her name? Well, it's probably because by calling her the wife of Uriah, Matthew is calling people's attention to quite possibly one of the most shameful stories about one of the most noble kings in Israel's history, where King David sleeps with his friend Uriah's wife. 
And when you take into account the cultural context of that story, it's actually far more likely that it was sexual assault. David uses his power and position to force himself on her, gets her pregnant, and then has her husband murdered in order to cover it all up. So Matthew calls her the wife of Uriah, not as a slight against her, but as a slight against David. He's trying to make sure that nobody glosses over that particular unacceptable moment in Israel's story. And lastly in the list, we have Mary, verse 16. Mary, as in the eventual mother of Jesus, has been elevated and admired in a lot of church traditions in many ways. But I think it's worth highlighting that in Mary's day, in her own day and age, she was simply an unwed, unmarried, pregnant girl in a hyper-conservative society. So she was not exactly admired or revered like she is today. Quite the opposite, in fact. Mary and her pregnancy would have been the subject of quite a bit of gossip in her hometown. So in summary, when listing out Jesus's family tree, the stock that Jesus comes from, Matthew has highlighted for us a vengeful seductress, a sex worker, a descendant of incest, a survivor of sexual assault, and a seemingly promiscuous teenager. Fascinating, right? And again, Matthew's purpose is not to slight any of these women in the story at all. Several of them obviously did nothing wrong at all. Rather, Matthew's intent is to leave no stone unturned when it comes to some of the worst moments in Israel's history. In Jesus's family, it would seem nothing gets swept under the rug. So the question is why? Why go about it that way? If the goal of a genealogy was to make the person at the end of the genealogy look as impressive as possible, why include these very unimpressive and even outright shameful details about Jesus' family history? Because that's not what you do with a resume, right? With a resume, you include the very best things about you and you leave out or at least downplay the not so good things, right? In a resume, you don't say, I work really slow. You say, I'm very deliberate with what I do, right? In a resume, you you don't say, uh, hey, I'm very inexperienced. You say, I love new experiences, right? That's how you do a resume. You figure out a way to tweak the details of it in your favor. And we know from history that people actually took a similar approach when it came to their genealogy. What people would do is that they would edit them just a little bit to highlight the people in their family, the details in their family that would help their cause, and then they would omit or gloss over the things in their family line that wouldn't help their cause. Well, Matthew has made some edits to this genealogy too, but none of his edits make Jesus' family look any better. They actually make Jesus' family look worse. In all likelihood, this would have led to just as many people questioning Jesus' legitimacy as it would to people believing in it. So what's the deal here? What is Matthew trying to do? Well, honestly, he's trying to do a lot of different things. There are enough things going on in this genealogy from Matthew chapter 1 that if I tried to explain all of them, we would be here well into the afternoon. And so I'm going to spare you that. Feel free to email me or whatever, and I will send you a bunch of stuff that is interesting to like two of you and boring to the rest of you, right? 
So I'm not going to do that today. Just for time's sake, I'm going to point out just two of the things that I think he is trying to say with this genealogy. So remember, the fact that there is a genealogy here is supposed to show us that Jesus is somebody special, that he's the Messiah. But the type of people in the genealogy actually shows us the type of Messiah that Jesus came to be. It's supposed to help introduce us to who Jesus is and the types of people that he associates himself with. So if that's the case, I think there are at least two types of people that Jesus includes based on this genealogy. We'll do each of these in turn. First, Jesus includes the flawed. Jesus includes the flawed. One thing that should be obvious from this genealogy is that God includes anyone, no matter how incredibly and unacceptably flawed we might think they are. Rahab is a sex worker by trade. Tamar seduces her father-in-law as an act of revenge. David is guilty of sexual assault. So to be honest, the word flawed is probably soft-selling it by a bit. There is no getting around the fact that Matthew goes out of his way to highlight some of the most destructive, ugliest moments in Jesus' family history. Think with me for a second about David specifically, King David. David is, from a human perspective, the most royal, impressive person in this lineage by a long shot. He was the most revered, loved king in Israel's history, and yet the way that Matthew presents him in this list, he makes sure that we remember the most despicable thing that David ever did in his life. What David did was far worse than what any woman in this genealogy did by a long shot. It's as if Matthew is saying that even the most impressive person in this lineage is only in it by sheer grace. Because no way would a person guilty of these types of things get into Jesus' family by merit. But in Jesus' family, it is not the good people who are in and the bad people who are out, however you personally want to define good and bad. In God's family, everyone gets in by grace and grace alone. And by walking us through the brokenness and moral train wreck that is Jesus' lineage, I think Matthew is showing us that the person at the end of the lineage, Jesus himself, is in a category all his own. No one else in the lineage is perfect or really anywhere close to perfect, but Jesus is. And the good news is that Jesus comes to proclaim his goodness over us, his perfection over us. The news of the gospel is that Jesus' perfection stands in the place of our imperfection. His obedience stands in the gap for our disobedience. And when this Jesus goes to the cross at the end of his life, what he is doing by his own admission is becoming a ransom for our sin. It's what Jesus says he came to do by his life, death, and resurrection. He is rescuing us out of our sins, however heinous they may be. To where now the final word on those in Jesus' family, both then and now, the final word is not sinner or screw up or flawed or anything like that, but rather son or daughter of the king. That's the good news of Jesus. That's how Jesus includes the flawed. And part of the reason I think that's so important for us to realize today 
is because I meet people all the time who think that somehow their past sins and failures disqualify them from God's grace. People who think I've done too many things wrong to be a Christian, who say things like I've done too many things that I can't take back. I've run too far and too long. People who say things like if I walked into church, I bet the doors would catch on fire. You ever heard that? But this genealogy from Matthew would seem to suggest otherwise about how Jesus works. It would seem to indicate that there is no such thing as being beyond the reach of God's grace. That's not a category that exists for God. So the truth, according to Matthew, is not only that God puts up with you, but that he desires to include you in his family. And we can gather that not just from this genealogy, but from the entire story of the Bible. One other prime example is Paul, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament of the Bible that you hold in your hands. That guy, before Jesus rescued him, personally oversaw the executions of likely hundreds of Christians. Personally oversaw those. And then Jesus intervenes and sets his life on an altogether different trajectory. To the point that in 1 Timothy, that passage that Eric read for us earlier, he reflects on all of that. He reflects on his story and who he was before Jesus intervened. And he says essentially in that passage from 1 Timothy, you know what? I think one of the reasons that God saved me is to show the world that no one is beyond saving. I think that's why God showed his patience and his mercy and his grace to me. If God used me, surely he can use anybody. That's Paul's perspective on it all. So one thing we see throughout the Bible and in this genealogy specifically is that there are no limits or boundary lines around the type of person that God can and will use to carry his story forward. So listen, I don't know what you came in here believing about yourself. I don't know what you came in here thinking about how far gone you might be but I can assure you, you are not too far gone for Jesus. Not if these are the types of people that he intervenes and saves and redeems. Jesus includes the flawed. Second, Jesus includes the excluded. Jesus includes the excluded. Second, by the type of people and stories that he chooses to include in this passage, I think Matthew is trying to communicate that Jesus associates with those who have been most shunned and scorned and forgotten by the society around them. For one thing, more, uh, sorry, more specifically than just he includes the excluded in general, uh, he actually includes specific people that had specific things about their story that made them excluded. So all of the women in this genealogy were excluded simply by being women in a patriarchal society. But even more specifically than that, Rahab was shunned by society because she was a prostitute. Ruth was excluded because of her family's shady history. Mary was excluded because she was pregnant and unmarried in a hyper-conservative society. And even Tamar, who was morally culpable for her actions, she did what she did in response to being shunned and excluded by her husband's family. So when you read through this list, you see that Jesus ongoingly, repetitively tends to include the excluded. You know, all cultures down throughout history have looked down on certain people in order to feel better about themselves. 
It's a problem with the human condition. All cultures have done this. Whether it's people from certain races that we look down on, people below a certain income level, people with certain physical or mental conditions, people with lower levels of education, or maybe, like in this story, simply because of the family that they came from. We all do this. We tend to draw boundary lines to decide who's in and who's out in society, or at least in our corner of society. But Matthew seems to be telling us through this genealogy here that God is not interested in our boundary lines. Think about Jesus' own life. He shows up on the scene and starts spending an awful lot of time hanging out with the people that no one else wanted to hang out with. Prostitutes, tax collectors, immoral men and women alike. Now we've mentioned this before, but I think you and I see that pattern about Jesus' life. We see that he hangs out with people that nobody else hangs out with. And we're like, yeah, Jesus, stick it to the man, right? Like that's so punk rock in our mind for Jesus to do that, right? To hang out with the people that nobody else does. But something you need to know is that it was not fashionably cool in Jesus' day to do that. You think Jesus got killed because he was fashionably countercultural? No, he he got killed because he refused to play by society's rules. He got killed because he included the people that he wasn't supposed to include, that nobody was supposed to include. And so Jesus looks at these people who were most excluded and he includes them when nobody else would. That bothered the people that saw it happen. So if you're here today and you have experienced exclusion in your life, Matthew wants wants us to know that Jesus sees you and he includes you. Chances are there are many of you in this room that have never quite felt like you belonged, whether it was due to your ethnicity, your gender, your sexuality, your education level, your personality, your past. Could be anything. For one reason or another, you feel like the story of your life is that you have been on the outside of society trying to peer into what's going on. And if that's you, I want you to know that in God's kingdom, you have found a different type of society altogether. One that operates on a completely different premise. In God's kingdom, the first are last and the last are first. In God's kingdom, the strong are weak and the weak are strong. In God's kingdom, you, the excluded, are now included in Jesus' family. And listen, not only does Jesus seek you out if you're excluded, he actually identifies with you in your exclusion. Jesus himself was excluded. The prophet Isaiah tells us that he was, quote, despised and rejected by men. He was one from whom men hide their faces, is what it says. John 1 tells us that he came to his own people and his own people didn't receive him. So if anyone knows how it feels to be an outsider, it's Jesus. So for those of you in this room who've experienced rejection of any kind, the scorn that you face, the passing glances that you've gotten, the the murmurs that you feel like you can hear behind your back at all times, Jesus has been there too. Jesus knows what that feels like. And it's precisely from that place that he is able to include us in his kingdom. Jesus includes the excluded. So there we have two things that Jesus' genealogy does that are precisely not what you would expect him to do. He includes the flawed 
And he includes the excluded. So lastly, before we close things out this morning, I just want to leave you with one last question for us all to consider before we're done. The question I want us to consider is this. Does our family look like Jesus's family? Does our family look like Jesus's family? What I mean by that is does our church family actively include the same types of people that Jesus's family did? Is this, our community, the community at City Church, is this a place where the flawed and excluded feel at home among us? When a person walks through those doors outside, when they, when they walk in this place, when they wander into the home, the living room where your life group meets, and, and they've messed up more times than they can count, they made a thousand horrible decisions that have blown up their life in a million different ways and they've pushed everybody away who might be able to help. When a person comes in worn down and broken by a past that seems to haunt them nearly everywhere they go, does that type of person come into our contact with our church family, with our community? Does that person walk in and meet the people here and think to themselves, yeah, I feel at home here. I feel like I belong with these people. I feel like they want me here. And also, when a person comes around our community who has felt nothing but rejection in their life, when they've always felt like the odd one out, when they've always felt like the one that nobody wants, when they've felt awkward in every scenario, or worse, like people despise them for being there in the first place, when those type of people walk into our community, come into contact with people at City Church, do those people think to themselves, yeah, I belong here. These people want me here. They desire relationship with me. I just wanna leave us with that question this morning. And, and I'll be honest, uh, just to alleviate some of the tension in the room, I think in many ways we do embody that here. Like I don't, I don't ask that question as like a really sly way of going, hey, we suck at it, okay? That wasn't my goal at all in asking that question. I think in a lot of ways we really do embody that posture here. But there's always room for self-reflection, right? There's always room to ask the question, hey, are we becoming more and more of that type of community or are we drifting away from it? Are, are there ways where we've gone off course where only people that look like us and act like us and can keep it together like us can belong? Or are we becoming a safe haven for anybody and everybody in our city no matter how much of a mess their life is? No matter how much they don't behave or play in the lines that we've set up? Are we becoming a place that accepts anybody who's worn down and broken either by their own actions or by somebody else's? Are we becoming a place where those people come and they go, yeah, I belong here? And are we pointing people to Jesus in the way that we do it? That's the question I want us to consider this morning. And the reason is because that's what Jesus did for us. That's precisely what Jesus did for us. He welcomed us in no matter how flawed we were. He brought us into his family no matter how excluded we felt. Jesus did that for us because that's the type of king that he is. We see that in this passage. We probably could sit around and tell stories of how we've seen that in our lives in a dozen different ways. But that's who Jesus is. 
And that's who he calls us to be, even though it's precisely not what you would expect from the world standards. I'm just gonna ask you to consider that this morning. Let me pray for us. Thanks for listening. As many of you guys know, we are in the process of renovating and moving into a historic church building located on the Tennessee River right in the heart of Knoxville. If you regularly benefit from this podcast, we would love to extend the invite to you to consider giving to those renovations. If you're interested in finding out more, head to citychurchknox.com slash buildings.